Hi, Axie. Thank you so much for calling in today. Hi, Marge. Thanks so much for having me. It is so awesome that we were able to make this happen. I know that I didn't give you like a ton of of a window of time to throw this in your calendar. So I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. Um, I listened to some of your um, interviews with your other authors before and like yeah. I'm excited to come on. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. So folks, I'm talking to Axie O. That's her full name, which is super cool, by the way. I love your name. Thank you. We're going to go wide and deep and have a lot of fun with this interview today. Yay, I'm so excited. So um, like I, like like Marge said, my name is Axie O. Um, I'm the author of several YA novels in different genres. So my debut was a YA sci-fi set in Seoul, South Korea. It's called Rebel Soul and the sequel Rogue Heart. Um, so were my first two books. And then um, this this past summer, um, I had a book out called XOXO, which is a YA contemporary novel, um, which is about a girl who falls in love with a K-pop idol. So <laughs> that was really fun. And then, yeah, my newest novel is The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea, which is a fantasy, a retelling of a Korean folktale. So I have a lot of a lot of YA, but in different genres. And um, I'm from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. I moved to Vegas when I was in high school. And um, I live with my dog, Toro, who's named after Totoro from my neighbor Totoro. Of course. Oh. <laughs> I'm a huge uh, Miyazaki fan. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that later. Yes. Um, but yeah. So it's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Okay. So one of the things that I am actually really fascinated by, you just sort of brought up, is that you've been genre hopping. <laughs> yes. I think that's really cool because sometimes authors are a little hesitant to go genre hopping and you have been successful doing so like right off the bat rather than trying to like stick to a genre, build a a genre specific audience. What do you think has, um, I mean, is there something that ties all the books together that's maybe bringing your readers along from one book to the next to the next? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the age group, I think YA as a, as a age group and genre has its own um, own themes and elements that I think people are drawn to. So all of my books will have those sort of things. It's like a coming of age. It's like you're experiencing a lot of your firsts, first love, first adventure, first heartbreak, all that kind of stuff. And so that will, that's like across the board with all my books, so those, those sort of themes that you get in the YA category. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I've been a huge reader my whole life. Like I've read, um, I was definitely the kid in elementary school who'd be like on the weekends, tell my mom to bring me to the library. And I was definitely yep. the kid who knew the librarians knew me by, knew me by name. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think the reason I write in all these genres is because I read it in all those genres. Mm-hmm. Um, my debut novel wasn't my first novel. My first novel I ever wrote was actually a fantasy. It just, my first published novel was a sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's always like, how many novels are crawling around inside the cupboard, you know, that haven't seen the light of day yet? <laughs> I have like, I think three or four different stories that I started writing in like high school and college. And I got like, you know, anywhere from three to six chapters in. And then, you know, it just didn't didn't continue, which is fine because I, I have no problem with the idea that we we practice right, you know, until we eventually nail it, get it right and have something that enters the published world. Yeah, for sure. I um, started off writing mostly short stories and flash fiction before I even 
tried to write a full novel. That's so cool. Short stories for me are really, really intimidating. No, I mean, that's all right. I mean, like with flash fiction and short stories, um, one of the benefits is that you begin and end and you com- you complete something. I think with the novel, it's like a long endeavor. And sometimes it gets like harrowing to be like, I'm working on this novel. It takes, it's taking me years. I know. <laughs> A flash fiction piece, it gives you that satisfaction because you like, you can, you can write it in a day. You can like begin and end it in a day, which is like, Mm -hmm. I think really great, especially for beginner writers um, to like complete something. It's true. It's true. Yes. I, I just, I actually in my novel series, at least the first one, I really hope that when I pick up a team, a publishing team that wants to help me with this, that they're going to like thumb up this because I'm, of course, terrified. They're going to go, no, it's a bad idea. (laughs) But um, in my first book, I want to do it as first person. But then about every five chapters, I put in sort of a flash fiction chapter that's from the perspective in third person of one of the other characters. Oh, I love that. I feel like that. I feel like I've seen that too. Like a, like even like a vignette, like in the middle. That's what I've been calling it, a vignette. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you just nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And um, all my books are actually in first person. So I relate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, there's so much to be gained from first person. And then I'm like, okay, but maybe I can cheat a little bit and gain some of that, you know, give additional broader, wider information to my reader And actually, each vignette is designed to really grab the reader by the heart and have them fall, have a little miniature fall in love moment in a way, connect with those other characters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've definitely read that um, and have experimented with that too. So that sounds really cool. So let's see here then. The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea. What type of history or... or, um, cultural roots might have um, drawn you in that direction or augmented that story as you did research? Yeah. So um, The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea is like an, a novel, a YA fantasy novel inspired by a lot of Korean folk tales and legends. And that's my heritage. I'm Korean American. Right. My, my parents are immigrants from Korea. Um, and I definitely think um, growing up, I had like those picture book. I had like a picture book of Korean folktales. And one of the folktales was called uh, The Tale of Shincheong. Actually, I don't actually don't think it was called. I think it was called The Blind Man's Daughter. But I think I, I think I would call it The uh, Tale of Shincheong. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like one of the folktales I, I loved growing up. So I think when I was writing my novel, I was kind of thinking of the sort of why retellings that were popular at the time or popular when I was young, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of uh, authors, Shannon Hill, Gail, Gail Carson Levine, they write like retellings of sure. uh, classic fairy tales that, you know, that are more maybe familiar in the Western, in the West, like, um, you know, Cinderella, you know, Sleeping Beauty, those kind of folk right, tales. Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. But when I wanted to write my uh, fairy tale retelling for the YA audience, for for a modern audience, um, I kind of was like, what interested me? And it was my, um, those folktales that I grew up on, those, oh. which are lesser known. Yeah. Okay. No. So this, okay. I love this. This is, this is honestly probably the first big question in my mind that drew me to your book as I understood more about it and caused me to be like, 
I'm going to chase down this woman and her agent and her publicist and get my, my email to them saying, please be on my show. And it's this. So are you familiar with Marissa Meyer? Yes. Right. I was on, I was on her podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Really? Yes. Uh, yeah. For, um, to promote my, actually my other book, my K-pop book. She's on my, she's, joining me tomorrow. I'm interviewing oh, her tomorrow amazing. afternoon. Okay. So anyways, I didn't know she had a podcast. I'm kicking myself. I should know this. But the thing is, I remember thinking when I saw your story, I thought, okay, hold up here. As familiar as we all are with Cinderella, we are deeply, phenomenally unaware of stories that someone from India or Korea or somewhere else in the East would totally know about, Right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think um, that was something that I thought about when writing this book. So it's so actually in the book, the heroine tells the stories out loud to a, another character. So I actually get to tell three Korean folk tales in the book, and I did that because I wanted people to know these folk tales because they're ones that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, and like folk tales all are kind of similar around the world they all have this sort of like they they're trying to teach a lesson sort of thing and they have this you know magic and whimsy um and so that was part of it too there it's like I don't think you have to know you don't have to know the origin of the folk tale to appreciate the book but no, um, of course I, not I'm sure yeah, I think I think it's fun for people who do know you know to get those like um you know, familiar touchstones. Yeah. But for people who are unfamiliar with those folktales, I think it's introducing it to them from, from, from my, from my voice. So, you know, an authentic voice, which I think is really powerful. Um, and I think a lot, there's a lot of books coming out these days um, told from told uh, like retellings of folktales that mm -hmm. are not from the, that are not Western. Um, they can be African or Asian, um, and they're told from authors who share that ethnicity and who grow up with those cultures. So it, it's kind of, you're being told the folktales that you wouldn't necessarily have known maybe 10 years ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also there's uh, amazing books where they're like um, retellings of Western folktales, but like set in Asia, like there's this great one by Julie C. Dow called uh, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns, which is a retelling of Snow White, but set in yeah, like uh, Imperial China. Mm -hmm. So very well, cool. And yeah. the um, the first book in the Lunar Chronicles, um, which is the one that is the retelling of like the Cinderella, it's where oh, yeah. Cinder, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Isn't it Cinder? Yeah. Cinder yeah. And yeah. Then, That's yeah. based in, in, I believe, well, it's a futuristic Asia. I, you know, I don't even know if they call themselves China anymore, but it's, you know, it's like that. And yet you're right. It's basically a Cinderella retelling on the other side of the planet. Yeah, I think it's, I think definitely, I think it is China because I think it takes place in like Neo-Beijing. Yes, yeah. right. There you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just, I feel like humans are so amazing around the world. Although it's probably not even your intention at all. I perceive it as this great social good because it's introducing a whole bunch of people to these myths or folktales that are there for a reason because they have a valuable message to sort of like bring across. And a lot of times it's not just that it's valuable, like you're being all judgmental. It's more like it's intrinsically human. Yeah, I know. I uh, One of the things I really wanted was I wanted on the cover, I wanted a girl who was dressed in the traditional Korean hanbok, like a Korean dress. Because mm -hmm. I don't think they have, we have that in YA. I don't think, I think this might, my book might be one of the first where the, the heroine is dressed in a hanbok. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that was really important to me and they did it. And like, you, you should go check out the cover, <laughs> um, because it's, it's really beautiful. Um, yeah, no, it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, um, what is your website? Uh, my website is my name, uh, axio.com. So A-X-I-E-O-H.com. Right. A-X-I-E-O-H.com. So folks, here's the deal, right? You can always go to marchtwisdale.com, which you have probably visited before and may be um, familiar with. Because if you're driving down the road and you can't write this down, I don't want you to get in an accident trying to do so. So um, you can go to marchtwisdale.com at any time, of course, and you can scroll down on the home page if you want or go straight to podcasts and you will find Axio's face and name. And then when you click on it, her bio is going to pop up and in the bio, we'll make sure we have a link to the website. I, I mean, I love the cover and I'm just so happy and thrilled that your team Uh, shared your passion and that they are willing to support this, especially, like I said, your genre hopping. How has that been? Like, like the first time you did it, did your agent go, whoa, or were they like, yay? Or, you know, how is that for the team when you're sort of like, you know, bouncing around a little bit? Yeah. um, My agent's been great. She's like, her name's Patricia Nelson. Um, She is an agent for the Marsal Lion Literary Agency. I know Um, that name. You are so lucky. She's awesome. (laughs) She's great. Um, she actually signed me with this book, with The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea, back in 2015. So she, um, my first book, my debut, um, I was unagented. I, I got published through a contest. So my publisher at the time, or two books, um, an amazing publisher there. Um, they have a contest every year called the New Visions Award, where they publish authors of color who are unagented. So I didn't have an agent at the time. I won the New Visions Award and they published right. me. While that was happening, I had written an entirely different book, a fantasy, which would eventually become The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea. Right. Um, and my agent, Patricia, she signed me on that book. So she already knew I was working in two different genres when we started working together. And yeah, and then when I told her when I when I wanted to do contemporary, she was like, that's cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And it helps that um, between my books, it's a year in between. So my Last sci-fi came out in 2019, then my contemporary came out in 2021. So there was a gap there. So it wasn't, it wasn't like suddenly I'm writing contemporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And that was a two-year gap. 19 yeah. to 21. Oh, you're right. Okay. You're well, right. that's this is why good. I this is why I wasn't a math major. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Well, it probably felt like one very long, 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 long year. Yeah. I, I just, I love that because it's, it's all over the place, right? The the rapid release things where you've got people who are oftentimes that's related to self-publishing, which folks can be phenomenally legit. There's this one author, she's from Canada. This woman is phenomenal. I love her books. I have bought all of her books, but she um, self-publishes and therefore is incredibly busy doing like everything. And she yeah. gets out like three books a year. And I just sort of like, fall over sideways every every time I think about that. I mean, I'm holding onto the table right now. So it's like three books a year and they're good. How do you yeah. do that? Right? I know. Like those authors who are very prolific. I have a friend um, who she's writing in two, genre, two different age groups, fantasy and middle grade. And mm-hmm. she's like constantly writing and constantly uh, busy, but like, you know, having great times. So I'm like, oh, I respect that. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
So what I like, though, is I like it that you had a two-year gap there. I mean, for whatever the reasons, I'm just glad to know that it is supported in the industry still because, like, I remember The Hunger Games, for me, I started reading it after the third book was published. So I I didn't go, I'd see, this happens to me a lot where I tend to not dive into a new series, especially if it's super popular. I'm sort of like, eh, that's probably not my thing. But then after the whole world has sort of like flipped out for three or four years in a row, I started to go, maybe I should read it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so when I picked up The Hunger Games, all three of the books were already written. So I had no delay. I like read the first one, bought the second one, bought the third. But I remember feeling like between the second and the third, even though Suzanne Collins is an amazing writer, I just thought to myself, they should have given her more time and they should have let her write two books instead of one for that third part of the story. It felt a little rushed and I don't want our authors to get rushed, you know? Yeah, I definitely think um, giving more time to authors, especially especially um, now, <laughs> the situation, Yeah, um, I think that's just how it should be if they need it. Because I know that the working under the a book a year schedule is very difficult especially if you're writing two books a year that's like even more difficult okay. um, I just oh, oh, yeah. oh, I mm-hmm. just, oh sorry see their visceral reaction to that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know but then there's those people who do it and so I just, yeah pick up jaw closed teeth amazed props to them yeah, I remember. I read. I remember reading the Hunger Games as they were coming out, and uh, I actually never read the third one. <laughs> uh, oh, interesting. I, I read the first one as it came out, and then I read the second one, and then um, I got the. I bought the third one, and my friend borrowed it, and then she never gave it back. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wait, wait. Did you then see the movies? Yeah, and then yeah. I saw the movies, so I knew what happened. Yeah, so I was like, should, I, should I go back and read them? But I know what happened, so yeah. Well, and I'll be honest, given that. I was so happy and not surprised when they decided to make four movies. Mm. I was like, the, as soon as that came out as news, I was like, see, I was right. They should have let her write four books instead of three. I was like, exactly. And um, and so to be honest, I feel like you missed nothing at all, really. They extrapolated that third book out so beautifully. I mean, yeah, if, you, if you're ever bored and you want to go read it, feel free. But they nailed it. Those movies were good. Yeah, they were really good. Yeah. So you you live in Las Vegas and you came back to Las Vegas after going to school in San Diego, right? Yes. So why did you leave San Diego and go back to Las Vegas? What do you love about Las Vegas? Oh, my family's here. So actually, um, I think I mentioned this earlier. I was born in New York and I grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So I have family there too. My grandma lives there. I came, I moved to Las Vegas, my family, um, when I was in high school. And so there, my family's still here in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I actually went to graduate school in Boston. So after San Diego, I I did graduate school in Boston and I also worked a bit in New York city. So I've I've been, I've been, I've been been places. I went to school in in Korea too, for a little bit for a summer program. So, um, do you speak yeah. Korean? No, but I not fluently. I'm more of a um, conversational. Like I can, when I go to Korea, I can, you know, uh, order coffee, order coffee, <laughs> you know, 
talk to my uh, relatives, but I can't like, you know, if someone mentions like a politics, I'll be like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like Americans have this um, perspective of fluency that fluent means that you have to like, you know, know everything in the language or something. But it's really cool when you have friends that live in like Europe and moms from Poland and, you know, dads from France and they're living in Spain. So the children grow up and they can they learn Spanish and English in the school system. And then at home, sometimes it'll be like, you know, either mom will only speak Polish and dad will only speak French. And that way it keeps it really delineated for the children. And then they'll say, hey, I'm quadrilingual. It doesn't mean they know all four languages equally. It just means that they can get by. And that that's totally seen as legit in Europe, whereas in America, there's like this sort of um, anxiety around it. So it sounds to me like you're totally, you know, you speak Korean. You just can't, you know, have a physics discussion in Korean. I think um, I think I've heard that the if you're fluent, you can make a joke in the language. I think that's like I've heard that. Like if you can make a joke in another language, then you're fluent in that language. And I can't make a joke. I can yeah. make Conglish. I can make Conglish jokes where it's like, if you know Korean, if you know some Korean, you know some English, then you can get the joke. But I can't <laughs> make jokes in Korean. Yeah. You do realize I'm gonna go find a Korean joke book and email you a joke in Korean. <laughs> then you can claim fluency. <laughs> that's how we work the system. <laughs> but your yeah. parents grew up in Korea. Uh, my kind of my mom immigrated when she was 14, my dad when he was four. So that's why we don't speak Korean in the household because my mom is fluent, but my dad is not. Mm. So um, cause he came when he was four um, and he grew up in uh, Long, I- Long Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he has a New York accent. He is like, a, we did, my family did, uh, I guess they were processed through um, the West Coast was Angel Island or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they moved to the uh, East Coast and my mom, my mother's family actually went to France first from Korea and then they went to um, Rhode Island. Oh, so they didn't go over the Pacific at all. No, they went, I guess, around. <laughs> over the landmass in Atlanta. Yeah. Wow, I mean, I imagine their stories, like my grandparents, I heard all their stories, which were like depression stories and World War II stories. And so you must have some really interesting immigrant stories that your grandparents tell. Oh, yeah, for sure. Really, really intense ones because my grandmother on my mother's side, my uh, she she passed away, but she her family is originally from what is now North Korea. So uh, but before then, obviously, it wasn't when the 1930s, it, it wasn't North Korea. It was just one country, right. but she was originally from that area and then she fled during the war. So she has like she had these like wild stories. And then my other grandma, she's from what is now South Korea, but the Southern Peninsula. What is there to know about, oh gosh, wow, that's just like a horrible question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Let me see if I can frame it well. What are a couple of things that come to mind that you would know that most of us who don't have a family linked to the country would just be clueless about that we just haven't picked up? What amazing things are there to know that we just don't know? Yeah, I mean... I know that when I was growing up, I would be asked a lot, are you from North Korea? Are you from South Korea? Which is like a weird thing because I think people were associating North Korea with, um, you know, communism, mm-hmm. um, with a totalitarian government. And it was weird for me because I know I'm from South Korea. Parents are both 
immigrated from Seoul, South Korea, which is the capital of South Korea. Right. Um, so I would say uh, South Korea, but I felt like it was when I was asked this question, it was it was asked out of ignorance because mm-hmm. if I was from North Korea, that means I'd be a refugee um, mm-hmm. because you know when the, after the border closed during in 1950 after the the war, um, it wouldn't have been. I couldn't, my, I couldn't have been from North Korea. It's like impossible unless I was a refugee. But at that time, you know, that's very rare. Right. Um, I feel like that question was asked out of ignorance. It's, it's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my mother's side of the family, they have all these like wild stories about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was lucky enough to um, actually, one of the greatest things that I was very blessed with in high school we were asked to interview our grandparents about their lives. Right. So I was able to interview her about her life when I, when I was in high school before she passed away. She passed away a couple of years later when I was in college. Mm-hmm. So it was great to like hear from her perspective um, what it was like because she fled North Korea when she was uh, very young. But old enough to remember. Yeah. I mean, she had, a, I think she, at the time, she only had, she had one child. Yeah. You know, just imagine, I just, as a mother with children, I know the effect it has to have a child, especially one that you're actually attached to and bonded to. Obviously, there are some parents who end up failing to enjoy the bonding with their child. So, but the majority of us are pretty well bonded. And it's like, if my, if I was living in a country that came under attack and was falling apart and I by myself as just who I am had to flee I I know that's different than if I was having to flee with my child because it's like if my two adult beautiful children were, you know, over in France and something suddenly happened here and they're perfectly safe and I know they're safe and it's just about me getting out on my own. Boy, the stress level would be completely different than if they were with me. If they were with me, my mind would be saying, I must get them out. And if at any moment... To get them out, I have to sacrifice myself. That is an absolute will do immediately. And they need to understand they are not allowed to turn around and try to save me if it's going to put them at risk because nothing will hurt me more than something happening to them. So it's like when hearing that your grandmother was a mother with a child with her, it's like for me, I suddenly realized the elevation of that mm-hmm. experience. Like, wow, intense. Yeah. 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 I think I was, I'm very, I was very close to that grandmother and I'm, I'm very close to, also with my uh, father's side, that grandmother. So mm-hmm. even in the growth felt beneath the sea, um, grandmothers play a huge part. <laughs> and I definitely Aww. think it's because I'm just so close with my grandmothers. Well, and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm white American and I adore my family and they're very connected, but they're also very diaspora. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. typical kids grew up and they scatter to the four winds or whatever and yada, yada. And I, I've had enough experiences in my life, literally living places where I would, you know, like in West Seattle, I started to get to know people and there were like eight houses on the street that were owned by people who were all relatives to each other. And that's because they were all immigrants from Vietnam. (laughs) And so it's like one family came in and then they invited their uncle who comes and gets a house in the neighborhood. And so what I started to take away was that that recognition that sometimes immigrant communities are more tightly knit and interconnected. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think um, just speaking from the Korean diaspora experience, I know that it's all very different. Yeah. For for me specifically, um, I did grow up 
um, with a lot of other Korean families, um, diaspora families in, in New Jersey, because my parents, my mother, all of her girlfriends were all Korean American mm -hmm. because she, her first language is Korean. So she's more comfortable with um, people who speak Korean. Right. So, all, so our community actually growing up, I went to school, when I went to school, it was very um, diverse. Um, I went to school in New Jersey. Right. Um, yeah. And, but like on the weekends, I would mostly spend time with, you know, family friends and family friends meant Korean, <laughs> Korean American because all <laughs> right. my mom's dad's friends were Korean and necess not necessarily full ethnically Korean. Um, a lot of them were half Chinese. My best friend is actually half Korean, half Indonesian. Mm -hmm. uh, also my mom's girlfriends and then their son, their uh, husbands, and then their children were, our, was like my weekend friend group. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so that's like the community I grew up with. So I feel very, um, especially immigrants whose first language is not English. Yeah. Um, there's like a Com camaraderie there's com there's uh safety and community so sure yeah it's like an ex i mean expats right you know like someone mm -hmm. who's american wants to go down to mexico and they look up an expat community and they're like oh i'll feel safer because there's a whole bunch of americans walking around speaking english yeah. i mean you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's see i'm watching the clock and want to make sure we touch upon like all these awesome things on our list so <laughs> we could talk a little bit right now actually about our shared, amazingly awesome, phenomenal gift to the world, favorite producer of the best movies ever. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, everyone out there. So I'm waiting as people are trying to guess who this person would be. Okay, let me just say right now, if you are listening and you are a parent or you're going to become a parent, I highly recommend that you put this on your parent to-do list. Think of it as a bucket list for parenting. Um, this guy is phenomenal. So do you want to tell everyone who it is? Yes. Hi, I'm Yazaki. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can hear the cheers in the background. Yay. <laughs> so you and I both have a passion for him. What is it that makes Hayao Miyazaki so amazing? And before we go there, just tell everyone a little bit about what you think it is that he sort of offers, you know, for someone who actually hasn't heard the name before, what does Hayao Miyazaki do? Yeah, so he is a director and creator of Studio Ghibli, which makes these amazing films. Uh, my favorite is Spirited Away. Oh, um, and the reason actually that March and I started talking about him is because my book, The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea, is like heavily influenced by that work, uh, specifically Spirited Away. Mm -hmm. um, and he also has all these great um, stories and they always feature strong female heroines, which is growing up something that was so important to me. Yeah. Um, and they always are beautiful worlds beautiful it's and they're animated um they're animated films mm -hmm. um and they're just so beautifully written and told and the characters are all really interesting um and that usually what he does is he does a female heroine and a female villain which is actually really cool he does that a lot mm -hmm. and, um, and sometimes the villain ends up becoming an ally like in yeah. oh oh, oh no the one where they go up castle in the Nope, not Castle in the Sky. It's the other one where the pirates are chasing the children and then they go up. Oh, that's, that's Castle in the Sky. That is. Yeah. Okay, okay, I got it. Oh, see, look at me. I got it. Ha! Okay, yes. I love that woman. Is she not the best bosomy pirate you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, I'm thinking like every single movie, he has, he has like a, uh, like, um, 
either a female villain or a female mentor figure. And it's usually both. Sometimes it's both. And uh-huh. when I say villain, I use that term in not necessarily like a bad way. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's really empowering. He has very complex, powerful female characters, which I think really appealed to me. Um, right. She, she yeah. makes he makes the women powerful mm-hmm. on either side of the storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Even in uh, now. Um, okay, boy, bringing these, these titles are so gorgeous, but bringing them to mind instantaneously. I wish I had the list in front of me. Um, Princess Mononoke. Yes. Oh, so good. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. That actually has one of my favorite female villains, Lady Iboshi. She's so complicated and complex yes. and she's so um, badass. <laughs> I know. I know she is. And then of course you've got the, all the women who are brought in to do this work, which is actually mm-hmm. sort of work fueling the evilness of of the the bad villain woman and yet these poor women who are brought in to do that they're not evil they're just sort of the taken advantage of impoverished women who are sort of like used but then they find their power I mean it's like the stories are so rich yeah they're so rich they're so complicated and they're so um you can't look at it in one way you have like even Lady Iboshi, who's technically the villain, she's only the villain because she's has a counter goal to the main character. Right. And her, and if it's if it's told from her point of view, I wouldn't think she's a villain. I think it makes sense. She's giving jobs to women. She's um, protecting them. The forest. So the reason she's a villain is because she's cutting down the forest. Right. I was gonna say this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ah, no. Actually, that's the, that's the reason she's a villain. But the wow. reason she's doing that is the reason she's doing that is to protect her community mm-hmm. um, of disenfranchised people. So, like, you know, from her perspective, it makes a lot of sense, right? So, and isn't it why, the the warty yeah. um, guy who ends up being the one who actually kills the beautiful spirit? Oh yeah, but. Um, He's also a fun character. Yeah. Yes. He, uh, Miyazaki does really great, uh, great side characters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what's really awesome about Hayao Miyazaki is I am just so thrilled to hear that you were inspired by him in the creation of the story because knowing how amazing he is, it just inspires me with even more enthusiasm for um, the girl who fell beneath the sea, which we haven't even talked about as far as the storyline. No spoilers, obviously, but... I gotta tell you, what you can tell us, which you're gonna tell us in a second, totally, totally captured my attention. I have not stopped thinking about this book, even though I've been, you know, super busy. It's like right there, just at the top of my to be read TBR. I'm still memorizing that, my TBR list. Tell us about the story as much as you can, no spoilers. Yeah, so The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea is about uh, my main character. Her name is Mina, and she lives in this. world that's being terrorized by every summer um, there are like awful storms that like sweep away villages and it's awful and then the only way um, to appease the sea god who they believe is sending the storms is to sacrifice a girl so they sacrifice a girl every year and she's either the most talented you know girl at some she has a great skill or she's so beautiful like there's some sort of you know there's a reason <laughs> there's a sort of criteria that my character my main character would not meet because she's not you know in their eyes beautiful or talented um but then the most beautiful girl in her village named shin chong which is the tie-in with the original folktale right. so the original folktale, the original folktale is um shin chong is the one who sacrificed to the sea god in order to uh in order to appease i don't know if it's storms it might be a drought but um 
So my main character, Mina, there's a character in the story named Shim Chung, and my main character, Mina's older brother, is in love with Shim Chung. So Shim Chung's the one who's supposed to be sacrificed, but then the night that she goes out to be sacrificed, Mina's older brother goes with her, like, to stop it, and then in doing that, he endangers himself, and so in order to save her brother and save Shim Chung, Mina's the one who goes and she jumps into the sea and she's the one who's whisked away to the sea god's realm. And she discovers that um, the storms are not what they seem. Um, and then she ha- kind of has to figure out in this beautiful world, um, this beautiful magical world, uh, what's going on and how to save the sea god and her people. So it's kind of like a fun adventure story that takes place after like all that stuff I just talked about, just the first chapter, all of it takes place in the sea god's realm. And she meets all these fun, quirky side characters, such as a Miyazaki influence. Right. Um, yeah, there's a there's a love interest. There's a boy who appears and could be could be helping her, could be against her. Um, and so it's just like a lot of fun. It's like very whimsical and romantic. And um, I definitely try to channel those those feelings that Miyazaki films give me, which is like the wonder and the um those warm feelings you feel the book is a very warm book like it's supposed to make you feel uh at the end of the day very happy (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and that's the thing about Hayao Miyazaki that I found I think truly admirable yeah but like awesome I guess what's so great and I really want to get this across for parents who or grandparents or aunts or uncles I don't care who you are if you have a child in your life check out these movies and find one to gift to the family. Look for your first gift-giving opportunity because what's brilliant is that every single age group in the family who's watching that movie is going to get something out of it. You know, the grandparent, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. And what's cool is that it can cover really intense topics in a way that won't scare the younger groups of, of the viewing family. And yet the older teenagers and adults are going to get it, you know? So it's sort of like, I really admired this ability to go deep into very powerful, relevant, important, should be considered and thought about and talked about human issues, but to do it in a way that was accessible to all ages without scaring out the young ones or boring the older ones. I'm just like in awe of what he's been able to create. I think that's also um, in general and broad, like in broad terms, I think that's also the appeal of uh, books. <laughs> the idea that you can, you know, for example, like a vampire book or whatever, you can have mm-hmm. these like, wild, these, you know, they're not ever going to happen sort of situations, but they can touch on real human issues, but in a heightened way. So it's like, um, I think that's the appeal of fantasy too. Um, oh yeah, fiction. It, it touches our mind and our hearts. And if, if your heart, like if you're sobbing over a page, if there's like teardrops on the pages as you're flipping through a book or you're throwing the book across the room or you're putting it down because you need a break, if you're being affected emotionally laughing, you're going to remember that. Yeah, 100%. You're changed. I think we're changed. Whereas you can read a nonfiction book and maybe in your mind, you, even if you want to memorize the details, I don't think it physically alters your being. But when our heart is touched, I believe we are physically altered going forward. Yeah, that's so true. That's that's definitely why I love those films, but also why I love reading so much. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can't. I've just, oh, I'm so <laughs> looking forward to reading this. 
And you're right. The cover is gorgeous. Tell me about this. I mean, authors are always sort of, they have their story behind how involved or uninvolved they were. And when the cover art came out, you know, what their reaction was to it. I mean, I just, I think this stands out compared to a lot of other covers. It's just gorgeous. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, I actually made a mood board on Pinterest, (laughs) um, this website where you can um, take pictures and put them together for my uh, designer. Um, my editor said, oh, can you put together a mood board for your book? Um, so I did that. And I, I put covers and artists I like. I actually put the artists who they eventually hired onto that mood board. Oh, I <laughs> yeah, love it. I don't, I don't think that's the reason they hired her. I think they already had her in mind. But she was definitely on that mood board because I was a fan of her artwork. Her mm-hmm. name is Curry Huang. Um, I believe she's a Chinese artist. Uh based out of New York City, um, but I might be wrong, but I know she is so talented and she, um, okay, so going back. So I had the mood board and then my editor sent me um, the sketch of the, of like based off what I, just based off what I described as what sure. I wanted. Right. I said I wanted um, elements that were in the book to be on the cover. So there's like, I said I wanted the girl with the Korean dress. I definitely wanted that on the cover. And I also said I wanted, um, well, I said I wanted that in the cover. And then I just named a bunch of different elements that they could include or not. So mm-hmm. I said they could include, there's this thing called the Red String of Fate, which is a East Asian legend that says that um, soulmates are tied by a, an invisible red string. And that plays a big part in my novel. So I was like, we can include that if we want on the cover. We can include magpies because there's a, there's a oh I see the red string yeah (laughs) I didn't see it before because it's very very gently subtle like it should be but now I understand the relevancy of it Um, and you can see see it's tied to someone behind her Mm -hmm. shadowy figure in the back oh yeah Um, and he's gorgeous of course even in silhouette um and then yeah so I just I you know on the cover you can see the magpie you can see um paper boat and you can see the lotus lotus flowers are a big symbol in the book because the original folktale the big the biggest symbol from the original folktale is the lotus flower so things like that they just they I told I just said I wanted that and then when I got the sketch you know it had some of those elements and I was like "Ooh, who's the artist And they told me the artist and I was like oh my gosh and then um and then they and then then the final sketch was the cover pretty much you know Mm -hmm. so yeah, so it was like very, very wonderful process. And I was so, I was like so happy just seeing it because it's like the perfect book. Um, for the oh, cover. it's, it's yeah. so incredible. I mean, the, in so many ways, it's incredible. Like the balance between the, the lightness of the entire, almost the entire bottom half because of the water mm-hmm. and then the, the faded, muted darkness of the top half. I mean, and then the fact that she's, I love that the water is like, oh, just call me very happy and impressed. Yep. I feel like um, it's interesting watching cover art sort of change and evolve, I should say, maybe with regard to like popularity or fashions, you know, sort of change. And I've, I've noticed in the past uh, year in particular, I think there's, um, you know, Andrea Stewart was um, on the show her cover is just jaw-droppingly amazing. Um, I've got, uh, I, I'm actually having to wait till next year, but um, Shelly Parker Chan is going to mm-hmm. join me for her this the next book that's going to come out. And I'm just looking at these covers and it, 
that it seems like the publishing world is giving itself permission to really invest in artwork again compared to about 10 years ago when a lot of, you know, if you think of the Hunger Games, you think of Twilight before they had their movie edition, you know, it's like two hands holding an apple. I mean, there was a lot of sort of symbolism and simplicity a decade ago, and now we're seeing artwork again. Yeah, I feel like um, different covers, different, you know, different elements for different covers is is really cool. My cover for my um, contemporary is also really beautiful. It's like a XOXO, right? Yeah, it's like a pastel, like a yeah. muted, beautiful, like a color, purple, like a sunset colors. Yeah. Um, it's also illustrated. So I feel like in my, my first two books, it's not illustrated. It's a photo. Mm, um, that's different. They, they, they kind of did a, um, they took a photo of a girl and they kind of, or a boy, and they uh, then did a more of a, um, more realistic looking mm -hmm. so I feel like you know every cover is just so unique to the book um, I think the Twilight cover is beautiful I think that was a very smart cover too because it's so striking oh I'm not criticizing it trust oh yeah me. <laughs> I think it, I think it was um Melinda Lowe I'm pretty sure um but she, I think she said that um the cover is the number one marketing material that an author will have yeah. so you know pushing for a good cover is actually the like the most important thing to push for as an author like if you get a cover and you think that it's bad then you should say that it's bad because that's that's going to be um that's like the number one thing that will sell the book so yeah. I definitely think it's important. <laughs> so that worry is justified. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking at Rebel Rogue Heart. Rogue Heart, that's not actually a photo. Is that really a photo? Well, I think um, it is a stock image. So yeah, a stock image of a girl, like a photo of a girl. And then they oh. like, and then the artist drew her clothes, drew her, drew the background. So it is an artist, but the actual image of the person is not illustrated. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, you know, oh my goodness gracious, you, I'm so happy your agent picked you up and that you are off and running on this career. I'm just really, really happy for you. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited for you too. I didn't know you had awesome four book series. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, not published yet, but it will oh, at some point, yeah. I believe very, very truly it will. I, I basically intentionally without any, um, hesitation, guilt or doubt, always back, put it on the back burner every time my family, my children, um, my farm needed me. You know, I, um, I just made a very conscious decision that I was preparing this, loving it, tending to it with the idea that when my kids were self-sufficient on their own, I would not ever be an empty nester because as soon as I could, I would be able to dive into this third baby. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, 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 I spent a whole, you know, decade. It was my, when I did have time to myself, that's what I did. But if I had to put it on the back burner for five months or something, my kids are teenagers and all, everything's going crazy. That's okay. And there was no resentment towards my children because it was my choice to put that back. And, and so I think I handled it really well. And then now they're really self-sufficient and I'm just exploding all over you know, this book and I'm meeting people. My, it's just, it's really awesome. So I feel like um, I had good balance there. Yeah, I definitely think like we talked, we, we mentioned a little bit earlier, but I signed with my agent on this book and the girl who felt money to see in 2015. So if you think about it, coming to, it's coming out in 2022. How long is that? Right. And I wrote it in 2014. So like, I don't yeah. even know, like what, eight, it's going to be eight years? Yeah. Like that. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, those books, I, I do consider this book, the book of my heart, like the book that's most special to me. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like those books that take a long time, it's not it giving it that time is a good thing and, and giving it that um, a belief, you know, like, mm-hmm. Cause this book has been rejected before too. Um, giving it that belief that something will come of it because you know it's a, you know it's good work. It's I think it's my best work. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that really helps, and I think uh, for you know with with writing, a lot of a lot of writers get discouraged because you know of rejections and things like that. And I understand. Yeah, um, of course. But I definitely think uh, persistence. Yeah, is very just 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 keeping at it and making it better each time revising, um, showing it to other, you know, your peers and critique groups that that's all going to push the book forward in some way. And, you know, know, it's like wine and cheese and other things like that. You know, cheese gets sharper with age and wine, (laughs) you know, matures. And so, I mean, writing is not just when literally characters are being typed onto a screen or written longhand. Writing Mm -hmm. happens in our mind. And so I know for sure I've got two or three boxes full of notebooks over these years. And I would never go anywhere on a camping trip or anywhere without a notebook. And when an idea would just grab me, I would write it down. And so I feel like, you know, I'm ready to hit my stride and be getting a book out every 18 months type of a thing to finish this thing. But I Mm -hmm. feel like if I had nailed an agent two and a half years in and written that first book, it would not be the book that's going to come out now. And I like the book that's going to come out now. So, so there you go. Yeah, I definitely think that's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's the book that is supposed to be published is at that is it happens at the time it needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I, I will ask one last question, which is, do you have like, um, I mean, I think you just gave some really good inspirational advice to writers out there. Do you have anything else you want to add as encouragement for fellow writers? Yeah. I mean, let me think. Hmm. Or another really good question could be, do you have some writers who you read, who you adore and love, and you want to recommend these authors for people who are looking for some great books to pick up? Oh, yes. You're welcome uh-huh. to talk about people you read when you grew up or okay. or something new. That's really up to you. I mean, I've been thinking myself because I'm going to start doing more reviews as a part of sort of my support for the writing community. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking, yes, yes, yes. Obviously, I want to support newly published writers. But honestly, you know, it's like the stuff that Michelle Cigar West wrote 25 years ago. I want to mm-hmm. review those books. And Anne McCaffrey mm-hmm. What 13-year-old girl alive today would I not want to hand Dragon Song to? No. And I mm-hmm. feel like this, these these incredible stories are just going to gradually fade deeper and deeper into the backlog of the library. And I almost feel like I want to pull them forward to the front of the shelf and say, don't, don't lose, you know. I mean, yeah, there's that too. So my last question is, what are some other fellow authors in the world, whether it's from the past or the present, that you really admire and think that people would um, enjoy reading? 
Yes, yeah, so um, I'm going to recommend some of the authors who actually blurbed my book. So um, when an author, you know, releases a book, they go, we go and ask, you know, each, either more established authors or our peers to write, to read our books before they come out and yes, write something wonderful um, that they can put onto the book. Yep. So um, I actually have five authors who um, blurbed me and I'll mention uh, one of them was an author actually I read when I was when I was in middle school. <laughs> so I read this author for so long. Her name is Juliette Morelier and she wrote um, Daughter of the Forest. Um, her YA is called Wildwood Dancing and she does retellings of folktales. So Daughter of the Forest is a retelling of The Six Swans. It's, it's adult. It's an adult novel. So keep that in mind, adult fantasy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I actually, I this, I think I've read that. Yeah, brothers. Book. Yes, the brothers get brother hurt, and the daughter has to. And she can't talk. Yes. Oh, okay, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So actually, she's so I'm. She's one of my favorite authors, and I I pretty much read every single book she's written, and it, and it was one of my reach people. I said it would be such an honor if she could blurb the book, and she Aww. did. She read it, and she wrote this beautiful blurb for the book. Um, and so I'm so excited for that. And my then, little heart's going pitter patter in, in, in empathy of happiness with you. Yes. Um, and then um, other authors, Ellen O, we share the same last name, but are not related. <laughs> um, she is a YA author um, who writes uh, also stories that center Korean characters, Korean American characters. Mm -hmm. And so she's been a mentor of mine. Um, she's published before me and she's actually the, the founder of We Need Diverse Books. <laughs> so she's nice. very legit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And she, she blurbed it. And then um, others is Stephanie Garber, author of Caraval. Um, and most recently, Once Upon a Broken Heart. Um, she wrote a beautiful blurb for the book. And then the other two are um, uh, Janella Angelis and Elizabeth Lim. And Elizabeth Lim also writes uh, retellings of folktales mm -hmm. or uh, fantasy novels with Asian, um, Asian theme or Asian you know, uh, aesthetics. Sure. Um, yeah. And Janella is a Filipino author, uh, Asian American author who writes, um, beautiful, uh, her books are Phantom of the Opera meets Moulin Rouge. So they're oh. very, like, very sensual, very magical books. Not um, to so, mention intense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had those authors who all blurred me and I, and I love and respect all of their work. So it's such an honor and I recommend all of them. Like the reason I asked them is because I'm a big fan. Yes. So the fact that they could blurb my book is like fantastic. So not everyone who's listening is going to be able to remember all the names. So I'm thinking um, when someone is checking out your book, the girl who fell beneath the sea, these, these five authors, they're going to basically be like on the back cover, right? Yeah, their okay. blurbs will be there and you can check them all out. And they're all amazing. And they all write um, fantasy. Oh, so oh my goodness. <laughs> that's why that's also why I asked them, because I knew that um, it makes sense because they were writing in the same sort of. Sure. All, Absolutely. Yeah, we well, this is such, this is a, just a brilliant example right here. Really, the positivity of the writing community. I've I've been so pleased to find it to be so um nurturing and kind and compassionate and and yet also very um encouraging in sort of a motivational way you know and it's just what a beautiful place to spend your life yeah so so happy for us smart i know <laughs> 
Woo! <laughs> All righty. Well, so we're out of time, but that was fabulous. And thank you so much. And folks, um, remember, you can go to marchtwisdale.com and then you will find Axie O's beautiful little face and you click on it and you go to her podcast show and the blurb right there. You know, it's her bio and we'll make sure it has in there um, her website link so you guys can learn more about her writing there. And I am just so glad you were able to join me on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I can't wait to listen to it later. Um, I'm such a fan of your show, and um, I'm just so glad. Thank you.